28. Isaiah chapter 28. This week, uh, we see Isaiah begin a new cycle of prophecies delivered during the reign of King Hezekiah. Up to now, the majority of Isaiah's prophecies have taken place during the reign of Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father. And uh, Assyria, who was the, the dominant threat at the time of Ahaz, is still the dominant threat and is now growing in power. There seems to be an invasion of Jerusalem, which is imminent, which is going to take place. Judah is desperately looking for a solution to their distress. And into this situation, Isaiah comes with a new cycle of prophecies. You'll remember that the previous cycle was characterized by that introduction, an oracle to. Here is an oracle to Babylon, an oracle to Moab. Here, you will see this cycle of prophecies distinguished just by the sound of a breath. In the ESV, it's translated, ah. It's sometimes translated, whoa, or ho there. And it is uh, a sort of exhalation, which is full of sorrow, which is full of foreboding, but also compassion. The preface to these woes, we will see, the first ah that is delivered, goes not to Judah, but goes to the northern kingdom of Israel. And if Judah is in danger from Assyria, Israel is even more so. Israel has more reason to be concerned. In fact, they are on the very brink of being overthrown. So let's look just at the first few verses of Isaiah 28. I believe 1 to 6. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley will be like the first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Isaiah talks about the northern kingdom of Israel as a glorious crown on a drunkard or a fading flower. Together, these images give you a sense of something beautiful, something glorious, something majestic, but incredibly unstable, very fleeting. The drunkard can easily have his crown taken. The flower, as scripture often tells us, is fading and it will disappear in the winter. But in this case, Israel's glory is not even gonna make it to winter. It's going to be suddenly plucked like a ripe fig off the tree. As we've seen, 
Time and time again, Isaiah makes very clear that while Assyria will bring about this destruction, they are at best a tool in the hand of God. They are a storm like the weather that God holds in his hand, that he throws down to earth at will. He has as much control over the actions of these men as he does over the rain. And he will ensure that by Assyria, the drunkard of Ephraim is overthrown. This image of a drunkard wearing a glorious crown is also meant to give the reader a sense of longing. We want that crown to be put on a better head. Think of Prince John in Robin Hood. It's not just that Prince John is a wicked ruler, it's that he's an awkward ruler. It's not just that he does a bad job. He clearly doesn't belong in the crown. You'll remember in the cartoon movie that that Prince John has trouble even keeping that big, beautiful crown on his ears without it toppling sideways. It clearly isn't his. He looks ridiculous in it. Now, while we could talk about Robin Hood and whether or not he's a hero with his aggressive model of redistributive equity, we can definitely say that the real hero in the story is King Richard, right? You spend all of that story waiting. When will the good king come back? When can we have a king where we can say the crown belongs on that head, that his character, his actions, his kingship reflect the crown that he wears? And this is where we see that longing fulfilled in God's plan. God says, yes, that crown of the drunkard king will one day be placed over the remnant of his people. God himself is going to be a crown over his people and the spirit of wisdom will reign over them. Now, Isaiah has already given us all those hints before. We know that he's already looking ahead to the reign of King Jesus, that day when the line of David will be restored. But after quickly glimpsing this hope, Isaiah turns and then looks at the southern kingdom, looks at Judah, the ones who will actually be preserved as the remnant after Israel has been carried away. But far from looking like this peaceful people right now, they look very much like the northern kingdom of Israel. So we're going to read from 28.7 right to 29.16 as Isaiah speaks to the southern kingdom of Judah. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, and rule, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. 
When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be a sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice, give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow the ground when he has leveled its surface? Does he not scatter dill, soak human, and put in wheat and rose, and barley in its proper place, and emmer at its border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation. And she shall be to me like an Ariel, and I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes to the prophets and covered your heads to the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read it, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder and wisdom of their wise men shall perish." The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. 
Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. You can see in this long passage, God is now speaking to Jerusalem. She calls Zion. Or in this passage, he uses the unique name for the city, Ariel. I expect some of our kids could definitely tell us what the name Ariel implies. Wish I could be part of your... No, it doesn't mean that. That's not the Hebrew meaning of Ariel. What most commentators say is central to the meaning in the Hebrew is that the Ariel is the hearth of an altar. It is the place where an altar fire burns. And this is a fitting title for Jerusalem as the place where the temple uh, where the temple altar sits, where those sacrifices are burned for atonement. Similar to the warnings against the northern kingdom, you saw regularly through this passage Isaiah characterizing this people as blind, as asleep, as drunk. Add all of these together, and you have a people who are totally incapable of knowing God's word or pursuing his will. Isaiah says they are both naturally blinded, naturally asleep, and the Lord has done this to them. The Lord has made them blind. The Lord has put them to sleep. This is both the natural consequence of their sin, and it is God's judgment on their sin. We've seen this before in Isaiah. We see it again in Scripture. Now, this blindness, this drunkenness is pointed out first and foremost in their leaders, the prophets and the priests who are meant to lead God's people in righteousness according to his word are unable to do so because they so dearly love their sin. The priest's preoccupation with pleasure makes it impossible for them to mediate between the people and God, impossible for them to exhort the people to faith, to repentance, to holiness. The prophet's own disregard for God's word makes it impossible for them to teach God's word as the word of God. They themselves can't be convicted by it. They can't be corrected by it. It has no power over them. They have no fear of God's judgment. They desire what God's word is meant to free them from. And then, by the time it comes for them to prophesy, they're already so enslaved to their sin that their prophecies themselves just pour out like drunken babble. All they can do is sin while they claim to be speaking for God. Now Isaiah warned, God sees those secret sins as they say, who knows us? As they are secretly even denying God, God sees. They ask, who sees us? Who knows us? Isaiah says God sees that the clay is acting like the potter, that the clay is even judging the potter. One day God will lay those secret sins and that arrogance bare for all to see. This hypocrisy spreads then from those leaders, those failed prophets and priests, out to all the people of Judah. It is still very important to see that this people is very proud to be recognized as God's people. It's important to them that they are externally seen to belong to God. Isaiah says, right, this people draw near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The temple, the sacrifices, the worship of God, those were integral 
to Jewish identity. This is what set them apart from other nations. That was important to them. But it was important to them for their understanding of themselves. It was important that other people saw this about them. It had nothing to do with God. They had no actual desire in their hearts for God himself. The fundamental command to fear God, that root command that is the foundation of all wisdom, that to them was a commandment taught by men. That was their tradition. That was their culture. That was the the appropriate thing for men to say to other men. That was their identity, but they didn't actually fear God. They had no actual love for God, no faith in him. They didn't care about belonging to him. This hypocrisy was most evident in how they received the word of God. They'd grown up with it. They'd memorized it. They'd recited it. But what happens when someone who is so immersed in God's word every day doesn't actually care about it or receive it as God's word? What does it become? Isaiah tells us how they hear it. Precept upon precept and precept upon precept and line upon line and line upon line and here a little and there a little. This nation who are so proud to call themselves God's people find the word of God to be a colossal bore. The preaching of God's word is like the adults talking to the children in Charlie Brown. You're probably maybe experiencing that right now. They hear laws, they hear poems, they hear stories, but they don't have any interest in what those things are communicating beyond maybe some good moral lessons and a sense of their cultural heritage. And so, when they're actually confronted by the word of God, which is what we see Isaiah doing as he prophesies, and they're asked to understand it, what do they say? 29, 11, and 12, the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read and say, read this, he says, I cannot read for it is sealed. And then when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. We see here both the learned scholar and the average layperson. When the well-educated man encounters Isaiah's visions, he says, I I just can't open the word of God. I I can't pull that apart. The less educated man says, I can't read it. Now, some of us might be suspicious of scholarship. We might be suspicious of people who are pursuing uh, understanding new concepts and ideas. Some of us might be suspicious of those who do not spend their time learning. We might see them as ignorant. But we see that the problem that leads, leaves these people ignorant of what God's word says is a matter of the heart. It doesn't matter your level of natural intelligence. It doesn't matter your education. Trusting in God is not a matter of being an intellectual or resisting intellectualism. In Judah, both the scholar and the layman are desensitized in their hearts to any kind of care or interest in what God's word says. To them, it is a cultural artifact or a table ornament. But of course, God knows the remedy to expose an arrogant disinterest in his word. What is God's remedy? It is by sending his people a crisis. He says, through Assyria, God himself is going to distress Jerusalem. He is going to make her an aerial, a place of burning fire. 
God raises Assyria to threaten all of this pride, all of this pleasure that the people have become so satisfied with. God uses this crisis to let them look at themselves, to expose what do you really trust, what do you really fear. In this passage, Isaiah promises. He actually promises in this passage that even though God is going to send this crisis, God will make sure that the invasion doesn't happen. God will see to it that the invasion is so thoroughly called off that it will have been like a dream that these enemies wake up from. God is promising before the invasion can even begin that he will absolutely deliver his people. Just hear him say that it will not happen. And so in their distress, these people turn and they cry out to Egypt. This crisis has silenced their pride. And it has exposed a faith so weak that instead of hearing this promise, instead of trusting in it, they would rather take their chances with Egypt, with their ancient enslaver. They would rather go to their slave masters than trust in God. And we'll see that more clearly laid out and exposed in next week's passage. But they are turning now, Isaiah says, to men that they have no reason to trust. Isaiah calls it a covenant with death. That instead of turning to God, we would rather go to the grave and ask if it has help for defeating Assyria. Isaiah uses a perfect image to help us understand what it is like to put our trust in men. I think it is an image that we could all appreciate. It is like sleeping on a cramped bed with a shrunken sheet. They toss and they turn. They're here looking for rest. Can we be saved from this distress? Can we be covered over? And they can't. They can't fix the kink in their back. They can't fix the cold in their feet. And one day, the terror is going to pass through. Isaiah warns that the terror is coming, that it will explode upon them day by day. Assyria may not invade, but the real threat is on its way for this faithless people. And where will Egypt be then? What happens to our covenants with men as soon as they do not prove fruitful for those we have put our trust in? Now the judgment Isaiah warns of is first coming through Babylon, but he's pointing even to a greater judgment that God is establishing, a judgment which God says he has already prepared a way out from. Once again, God's judgment comes with a promise of refuge. Behold, I am laying... I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep through the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. So there will be a cornerstone as the hail, as the waters come, as God sends his own judgment. He himself provides a refuge, but he warns that judgment is coming. The Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the whole land. So while we see the invasion from Babylon promised here, we can also see that God is slowly unfolding a greater plan. And that does include judgment, a judgment and a wrath 
that God has prepared which will seem strange and alien to this people who are used to his love and care, but still arises out of his justice. But while Jerusalem languishes in sin, while it stands upon the brink of this judgment and its shaky, weak, drunken, failed foundations will surely be cast aside, God says, I myself am already laying a foundation, a cornerstone, This will be the resting place from my judgment. It is here, rest in it. That begins as a hope. It begins as a promise. Promises that they could rest in even then. A hope that they could trust in even then. But then Peter quotes this passage to show us that the full final flowering, the laying of this cornerstone is accomplished in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sure foundation of Zion. And those who rest in him will pass through every terror and every judgment. All of history, even through this passage in Isaiah, we watch God carefully building up a foundation for the eternal city of Zion so that when Jesus came, he could be perfectly installed, securely set in place as the cornerstone of that city. When Jesus came, he immediately became this plumb line of justice and righteousness. His perfect obedience exposed the hypocrisy of those who were still very much like these drunken, sleeping leaders, those who loved God's word as a source of pride, those who loved the worship of God as a source of their own sense of holiness, who had no love for God. Jesus exposed that hypocrisy. and immediately showed those people to be condemned and sent them to judgment. But Peter tells us that even as Jesus came to judge, he came to provide an escape from judgment. He also exposed sin that brought about judgment, but he provided promises to sinners where they could rest through that judgment. Many people, says Peter, came to rest in Christ as the cornerstone And many people, says Peter, tripped over Christ unto their judgment. In Jesus' day, we watch as many of those people trip over the cornerstone, as many of those whose sin is exposed furiously despise Jesus. What they could not see was that by rejecting him, by even killing him, they themselves were participating in the installation of the foundation of the cornerstone of the eternal Jerusalem. Because he lived a perfect life, Jesus went to that cross as a perfect sacrifice. And as he rose again, he established himself to be the firstborn the cornerstone of the eternal city for all who would rest in him. And then as the gospel goes out to the whole world, we watch as Jesus remains this rock that people either run to for refuge or that they trip over to judgment and destruction. We've seen many examples in this passage in Isaiah of those who trip over God's foundation, which still existed then as the promises of the coming Messiah. We see many stumbling over it because they are enslaved to secret sins. Those who love the word of God as a source of their pride. So who then rests in God's promises? We see who doesn't. But how can we be sure that we are one of those who is resting in the cornerstone rather than tripping over it? Isaiah says, to whom will he teach knowledge? 
And to whom will he explain this message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast. This reference actually seems to be a part of the mocking of those who have no interest in God's word. Precept upon precept and line upon line. Those who had no interest in what Isaiah was teaching. The word of God, they would say, is for children. It's for simpletons. The Bible belongs in Sunday school classes where we can teach our children to be good little boys and girls. It's when you grow up and you live in the real world, that's where you have to start thinking practically. That's where you have to rely upon yourself. But Isaiah, and then Peter again, as he echoes this passage, assures us that those who receive the word of God really are those who come to it like children longing for milk, who rely entirely upon it, who come to God and recognize that they have nothing, that they are totally dependent upon him. No record to prove themselves, no intelligence by which to pick apart the puzzle of salvation, nothing to show. Those are the ones who will come to God and say, I trust you. I need your gifts. I need your promises. They will be the ones then who God invites to rest in him forever. Those priests and prophets, those scholars, those great leaders, they're so drunk on their own pride, they're so confident in themselves that they feel they have no need for the things that God is promising. Now, of course, from God's perspective, they look ridiculous. They also look like children, but children rebelling against their parents, trying to prove that they're capable on their own. But it is those who are meek, who are humble, those who come to God and know that they need him, those who open God's word because they need God to speak to them or they are lost. Those are the ones who receive God's word as the word of God. I need God to speak to me. And when he does, God points them to his cornerstone. He gives them a place where they can rest forever. Let's read chapter 29, verses 17 to 24. Is it not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, and the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction." Isaiah talks about Jacob, even then, alive with the Lord, as he is now. And Isaiah will one day be able to look upon his offspring, no longer in this terrible condition that Isaiah has exposed in both the northern and southern kingdom, because God himself will supply offspring for Jacob. And who will they be? Will they be better men than those blind, deaf hypocrites? No. Isaiah says, they will be blind men who God has made to see and deaf whom God has made to hear. They are not the ones 
who have proven themselves to be better while others have rejected him. God will provide descendants for Jacob by redeeming them from among those who have gone astray, just as God established his people. Not by holding a contest that Abraham won, but by redeeming Abraham out of the world. This was God's plan. This is God's plan as he sends trials and distress to his people. While those trials would for many people harden their hearts, expose their hypocrisy, these trials and distresses would produce the remnant who would trust in God, the blind who would see then, the deaf who would then hear, who would put their trust in God, who would humble themselves, who would see their need for God's word, who would come to him meekly and thus would receive his joy and his promises. God uses the analogy of a farmer's field to explain how he uses trials to cultivate his people. If you didn't know anything about farming, you might be surprised to watch a farmer tearing up the earth with his plow or beating his yield with a rod. You might wonder, is this actually what one is meant to do to produce a crop? Likewise, God uses the worst trials, the most painful judgments to till his field. You might ask in the moment, is this how a harvest comes in? But then we watch, and in the crisis, the weeds are uprooted as proud people reject God and his word. But then the ground is made ready. Idols are removed, lies are broken down, so that those who God has set aside for himself can trust in his word, and those seeds can grow and flourish. This is how God creates and grows his remnant. It is in our trials that many people recognize the word of God cannot just be a cultural artifact to me now. It cannot just be an ornament. I need it to provide salvation. I need it to make promises to me or else it's useless. Then I ought to reject it. We humble ourselves before the word of God. We stop telling God what he has to say. We stop coming to the potter and telling him, this is what you have to do. This is how the clay ought to be made. And we just ask, what does God actually say? I need to find out. I need to know what is true and whether the truth means salvation for me or I am lost. Does God have hope for me or doesn't he? And when we do this, when we actually come saying, I would like to hear God's voice, please. And we open his word for that. He directs us right to Jesus. He directs us to his salvation. He says, yes, I have given you an unshakable cornerstone in which you can rest to pass through this judgment if and only if your trust is in him. This sets apart those who humble themselves before God and those who can only ever hear the scriptures as the commandments of men, precepts and lines. You will see the difference in a crisis. Who turns to God as their hope? Who can recognize that they're weak and foolish? And who remains weak and foolish and trusts in foolish things? Now, it's very easy to look at this situation in Jerusalem, in the time of Isaiah, and say, I see a very similar picture in the church today. That's not untrue. I see a proud people who all claim that they rely upon the Bible, but they have no interest in it. They can, they can recite some of it. They can say some of this is extremely important. This is foundational to my worldview, but it's not the word of God to them. 
It's commands taught by men. How many Christians love, love, love the furniture of their Christianity? They love its pageantry. They love its traditions. It doesn't matter whether that's cathedrals and liturgies or whether that is Sunday school plays and outreach ministries. We love the furniture of our Christianity while God becomes totally irrelevant to us. We are privately so disinterested in holiness, so disinterested in actually knowing God as our Father. And we see that just as was true then, the blame for this lies largely upon the leaders. How many pastors and elders are secretly in love with their sin? How many pastors and elders have trusted in such foolish things that they open this and they teach it as though they were drunk? Impossible for them to understand what it means. Impossible for them to teach what is true because they themselves have no interest in what it promises and they themselves have no interest in what it warns of. And so, in traditional churches, in progressive churches, in evangelical churches, how easy is it to hear the word of God taught as precept upon precept and precept upon precept and line upon line and line upon line and Sunday school lesson upon Sunday school lesson and homily on homily. Yes, it's easy to see that, but this is where we have to be incredibly careful. It would be so easy for us to delightfully heap condemnation upon those out there, but our eagerness to do so would point the condemnation of this passage squarely at us. There is an extremely frightening warning here for me and for the leaders of our church to watch our minds, to watch our hearts, and watch our private actions. Never become proud in ourselves. Never stop talking or thinking about what we have accomplished or what people think of us. To remember what an obstacle we can become to the word of God and its power in a church body. An unwillingness to repent in a leader, a secret love of sin, simple evil pride not only condemns us, but it infects our preaching and it spreads out to cause disease in a congregation. This is a warning to every elder and every aspiring elder. And it is a call to everyone in the congregation to be wise and discerning so that you might continue to know what to expect from your leaders. Do not be the one asking them to stray from the word of God. Be the one who calls them to it. Be the one who demands that we as a church rest only upon the proclamation of the gospel so that we would rest only upon Jesus Christ. Now it would be so easy for all of us to just take for granted that the scriptures are so clearly a part of our culture as a church. It's so easy, let's compare ourselves to progressive Christianity, let's compare ourselves to prosperity churches, let's compare ourselves to seeker sensitive churches. What culture are we? We're the Bible Christians, right? That's who we are. We're the ones who teach sola scriptura, scripture alone. How quickly that can become our culture, our identity by which we understand ourselves. So then we start to take for granted 
I'm at one of the Bible churches. I'm one of the Bible Christians. Whatever I'm thinking and doing, whatever opinion I have, whatever action I'm carrying out, that's what a Bible Christian would do. So that must be what the Bible says I should be doing. That's just our identity. We can become extremely arrogant in this identity. And that pride in us will actually start to cause us to quietly reject Scripture's work in our lives. Even as we claim I'm just one of the Bible Christians. When others correct us with God's word, no, no, no. I'm one of the Bible Christians. Don't worry, I know. We start to become bored with its exhortations. Oh, I know that already. I'm one of the Bible Christians. We stop letting it direct our actions because we take for granted. This is what a biblical Christian would do. We start to become cold to the proclamation of the gospel. We've heard it already. We've heard it a lot. We can talk about theology. We can talk about Christian controversies. We can talk about the intersection of religion and politics and how everything's going to pot. We can talk about the history of the church. But we are cold to God. He's not our Father. We know a lot about Jesus. We don't know him. all of our intelligence and our understanding and our authority. If you can't open your Bible and say, this is the voice of my shepherd and I need to hear the voice of my shepherd so that I can find refuge and be saved. And it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. This was Jesus' warning to the Pharisees in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life what do they bear witness about? They bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You claim the scriptures, you claim to understand them better than everyone else, but as soon as the scriptures tell you, here he is, here is life, you can have it. No, no, that's not what I wanted. And I know the scriptures better than anyone, so I have every right to reject him. Contrast that with King David. Why was David desperate for God's word? Why did he love it? Because he wanted God himself. One of a thousand examples from Psalm 119. With my whole heart, I seek you. My whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I seek you. May I not wander from your commandments. Or consider Peter, who trusted in Jesus. Why? Because he heard his words and believed them. John 6, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For David and for Peter, to run to God was to run to the Word of God. And to run to the Word of God was to run to God, to run to Jesus. Friends, have you run to him? When you run to his word, have you run to him? Do you run to his word looking for him there, finding him there? Have you heard the voice of the good shepherd? Not a lesson in religion. But the actual voice of Jesus telling you here, I laid down my life for you. I took it up again after I had drank wrath dry so that I can promise eternal life to you with me. 
whether you are well acquainted with the Bible or whether you are hearing it say that for the first time, this can be the moment where you hear the voice of Jesus waking you up. Jesus himself opening your eyes, opening your ears, calling out to you to trust him and be saved by him. Just rest in him. Rest in his death, his resurrection, and he will be your resting place forever. You do not have to be a scholar to hear Jesus' words as his voice. In fact, you need to be a child. This isn't about reaching the right frame of mind or performing any actions. It's not about being an intellectual or an anti-intellectual with a lot of common sense. It's not a matter of having a high station or being respected. This is a matter of seeing that you have nothing by which you can prove yourself to him. Admitting you are weak, coming to him meekly. As you see him revealed to you in his word and finding there good news that everything has been accomplished for you by him. Have you done that? Is that who you are before the Lord? Have you come to him as a child and found in him a good father because you have a good savior in your older brother Jesus? If not, then come to him now. Rest in him now. And you can be sure that you will rest in him through every trial and storm forever and forever. Come to Jesus. And then as we trust him, we can continue to go to this word in our trials and our distress. It can continue to place us upon the rock and remind us, as Isaiah did, don't worry, that is God's good tilling and threshing work taking place. Don't be afraid that these are the trials that have made other people reject the faith. That was God's promise too. I will weed out the garden. I will free you from their lies. I will guard my people by removing those who would reject me for your sake. And in you, these trials will be the difficult work that causes you to look more only upon this, to come back to this, not as a lesson in religion, as Jesus Christ, your cornerstone. This is the way that God is bringing you up to be a part of his good harvest so that you will rest in Jesus forever. So let's pray for that. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I pray that those here who are hearing your word for the first time and maybe some who have heard it many times would see it not as a religious artifact, but as you speaking salvation and pointing us to Jesus Christ. Father, if there are some here who are so built up in pride in their understanding of themselves as somebody who already knows the Bible, who doesn't need its correction and teaching, if they need to be humbled, Father, I pray that your word would do that. For those who lead, I pray that we would be warned, that we would fear but that we also would know that no matter who we are, there is nowhere better for us to rest and find refuge than in Jesus, as he has shown himself in his word. And Father, for all of us who do belong to you, I pray that every trial and storm would not draw us away from you, but it would expose, no matter how frail, a trust, a childlike trust in nothing but Jesus, so that we would be his, and his alone, 
resting in him and him alone forever and ever. And we praise you for that wonderful salvation that Jesus worked so that that promise could be absolutely, undeniably true forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.